0: everyone. How's everybody doing tonight? Good? Blessed? Better than we deserve? Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to pick up in verse 10. All right. So uh, Exodus chapter 34. and We're going to be looking at verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. Perfect. Can I have uh, Jim grab two Bibles for those wonderful ladies in the back there? Anyone else need a Bible? Great. Good to see your smiling faces. You ready to have the Lord wreck us here tonight? Just open us up and just have His way in us? Because I don't know about you, that's been my prayer just all week. God, meet us in your word. Meet us in your word and just do amazing work. You know, this, this passage we're going to be in tonight, you know, you talk about the beautiful and perfect character of our God. Exodus chapter 34. I mean, you look at it, Moses is up there. You know, God's commanded him to go back up. He's making another set of tablets. But what's so beautiful about this is, is that Jesus Christ, God, right, he's going to renew the covenant that he made with sinful men. You think about that for a minute. He was up there already giving them the pattern of what the tabernacle, which was to be the place God dwelt, right? It was going to be the presence of his glory. And Aaron was down there taking a calf and, you know, not a calf, a golden calf. he jewelry that was meant to be used to build the tabernacle. And he's making an idol out of it. He saw it. God saw everything. He knew it was happening. And yet he was still crafting the intimacy of the, the ephod and the, the breastplate and everything that was going to go into that. You know what I love about this chapter? God means what he says. He says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He really means it. This chapter demonstrates that because in spite of the wickedness, in spite of what they've done, God goes back and says, look, I'm going to reestablish my covenant with you. And he he even reminds him at the end, he says, but in verse 17, we'll read, he says, but don't do that again. Don't make another God out of some other image that way, graven image that man can create. Don't you think he knows what Israel's going to do? But he's a long-suffering, patient God. That's why we don't have to wait till we, we somehow get perfected in some way to then come in and be saved. We can come as broken and as messed up as we are. We can come to the throne of grace and find salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's amazing. Only God can do that. Because his son went and died for us. He paid that price. So we're going to bow our heads. We'll pray. And then we're going to pick right up in verse 10. Father God, we just thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this chapter, Lord. Thank you for showing us your perfect heart, God. Your your grace, your mercy, Lord. Your long suffering. Thank you that you love us more than anything, Lord. That in spite of our sin, Lord, you you desire fellowship in spite of how we blow it, God. You, you don't see our sin. You see your son, your son's imputed righteousness in us. Thank you, God, that you choose to see that. Thank you that you're a loving God and you're not just, you know, consumed with anger and all that, but you're a God of mercy, love, and you're a perfect judge. Thank you, Jesus, that you're coming back for us. Lord, as I heard some of them, some of the ladies here praying, Lord, that you would come back even tonight before this message would be done. That you'd rapture us out of here, Lord. How we desire that. How we just want to be in your fellowship. We just want to be in your company, Lord, your presence. Until that time, Lord, there will always be a void in our heart. There will always be something a little out of place, God. Until we're hands in hand with you again, walking in the cool of the day, Lord, with, with your beautiful heart and presence, with your majesty and glory, the way you've created us to dwell for all of eternity, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people can say amen. So be it. Amen. All right. Well, we'll pick right up here in verse 10. In chapter 34, and he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as you have not done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. This introduction here is what we're going to read, verse 10 and 11, sort of as an intro, if I can say it that way, really tees up the rest of verses 12 through 28. Which is going to talk about, the, again, the renewal of the Mosaic covenant. That's what the Lord's sort of teeing up for us that way. And it says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the or the parasite excuse me, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. He says, I'm driving those people out of the land because I've, planned, I've promised you a land, what? Flow. Flowing with milk and honey, a sweet place. I've prepared for you. He's going to do it. Just like all of his promises. When he promises to come back, he's going to come back. When he promises not to see our sin, he's not going to see our sin. When he promises to love us with true agape, unconditional love, he's going to love us that way and he's going to meet us right where we are. He's such a good God. Verse 12, Take heed to yourselves lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons and your daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. In other words, intermarrying. We'll talk about that. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. So really up into that point, and I probably could have gone into verse 18. I'm, I'm going to exegete a little bit of this line by line, but the first thing he says to them in verse 12 was to do what? He says, I want you to take heed. He says, pay attention. Circle that in your Bible if you're taking notes. Underline that. Take heed. I want, I want you to understand this. Watch. Be mindful. That's what he's saying. Intentional. Those are the three things that as we look at the Hebrew, what he says watchful, intentional, mindful. That's what it means when he says take heed that way. He says Lest you make the covenant with the inhabitants of the land, who you going, where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. He's saying, don't believe or trust in their gods. That, that's what he's saying. Now, it, it may seem like God is stating the obvious, but remember, it's not many days ago. What happened? They went back to the gods in Egypt, where God had delivered them out of Egypt. And Egypt in, in the Bible, whenever we read about that, and we go back to see that there, there were, remember, over seven thousand different gods that they, when they were practicing like that, and they had come out of Egypt, right? They were they were believing in all those gods. He says, "No, I'm the one true living God." That's what he said. I'm the one true living God. I'm the Great I Am. He says, "Don't don't go back to Egypt that way. Don't go back to the meat pots. Do you remember what he says? Don't go back to those things." He says, you, you can't live that way. You can't live life walking forward and constantly looking back. He also tells us, Jesus tells us you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. He actually reverses that. He says you'll hate the one and love the other. But, but the point is still the same. We don't have the ability to do that. We, we want to believe we can handle it and we can do this. But you know what happens when you take something and you pull in this way and you pull in this way? What does it do? I mean, besides the obvious of stretching, it's going to eventually tear it apart. It's going to rip it apart. So he says, take heed. He says, pay attention. Don't believe or trust in their gods. But you shall destroy the altars, breaking their sacred pillars and cutting down the wooden images. He says, keep yourself from idolatry. Now, what is this idea of breaking their sacred pillars? Asherah, right? One of their gods that they had believed you know, they would put on a pole, he was the male god of fertility. So at the time, they're, they're talking about this pagan worship that would have been common, and he's saying, don't go and do what they're doing. Don't lift these pagan gods up and begin to worship them. Don't worship the male fertility gods. Don't worship any of it. That's, that's what he's saying. He says, break their sacred pillars. Cut down their wood images. He's saying, don't leave anything standing. Nothing that could be built back up that way. I mean, that's what we're going to read about as we get to the book of Judges and we begin to follow Israel. We see that often, even in Kings and Chronicles, that one king would build up an altar, an idol worship. Another king would come in and tear it down. And then the other king or his son would do what again? Build it right back up. Solomon. What was Solomon's big problem when you look at, I mean, we can go through many of them. I mean, men that's walked the earth that had more wisdom than anyone. What was Solomon's problem? Compromise of sin his wives, right? He had over 90, But what, what did that compromise of those many wives that God had said one male and female? Genesis 126, 127, I've created the male and female in my image, right? What came of that? That one of his wives ended up doing what? Pagan worship. She took the, remember the um, the can I don't want to say the candlestick or whatever she lit the candle, she went through the idol practice, forgive me for not using the exact term but she turned around and she was doing idol worship and then Solomon went along with it. He compromised. you know he's saying don't leave anything standing if there's uh, you know let's extrapolate this to our our life for application tonight, the, this evening. How many of us still have those idols standing in our heart in our homes? Right? God's saying, get rid of it. Right? You know, a funny story. When I, you might say I went overboard, but when I got saved, and I I remember reading the word, and then eventually, you know, I heard the Calvary Chapel on the radio, and I found my way into Calvary Chapel, and I I was so cut to the heart in a beautiful way, God was doing something very special in my heart. And I I had a lot of DVDs. You know, back then, you know, I think I had VHS and some of these tapes. You, You remember... Some of you remember the Betamax and even before that, right? But I had this movie collection of things that I thought were great movies, a lot of military war, you know, a lot of, you know, guys like, yeah, you know, a lot of good stuff like that. And I remember coming home and I was just looking at that and I and I felt like, Lord, I'm looking to these things still. I, I still find, you know, whatever. And, and I just felt like the Lord says, take them and get rid of it. I'm not telling you to do that. That's what he was telling. That's what I felt like the Lord was speaking in my heart. And so, what did I do? A part of me went, Man, this has got to be $1,000 worth of movies. I'd been buying them over the years, this collection. And so, you know, there's greed. What do, what do I think? Well, I bet I, if I could sell them. And what did the Lord say? What are you going to build a sacred pillar so somebody else could offer and, and sacrifice on it? So I took it and threw it and burned it in a pile. I got rid of it all. That's what it means to destroy the altars there that are that are in our lives. It doesn't mean to to hold on to it, to think we can handle it, or to somehow compromise with it. Get rid of it. If there's something on the computer you shouldn't be looking at, throw out the computer. Or get rid of the internet, one or the other, right? Don't compromise. If, if if you can't handle going to the to to watch uh, you know at the sports bar and and have a, a, a you know one beer and just socially have a good time like that and because it causes you to get into heavy alcohol and you start drinking and drinking and you can't stop guess what I'm gonna say guess what the Lord's gonna say don't go to the bars right don't put yourself in a place where you're gonna constantly be tempted that way that's what God would tell us. And is he doing it because he's being legalistic or is he doing it because he wants to protect us from us? Amen? He wants to protect me from me. He says, take heed, pay attention, watch, mindful, intentional. He says, you're going to destroy these things. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Is a jealous God that way, right? He's saying he doesn't want false worship that way. He's not interested in that. I think he's also telling us here that it's to be about a theocratic rule when you think about it. It's not the democracy or republic of heaven, is it? It's the kingdom. And where there's a kingdom, there's a what? King who sits on the throne. How many of us have registered that mentally? We're so spoiled in this country. Because we have the Republic and the democracy, and it's wonderful that God's given us that liberty. Praise Jesus for that. Compared to a dictatorship on the earth where we see people that have, you know, been Nicolaitan, lorded over, so to speak, as the Bible says. Praise God, we have freedoms. But sometimes I think it's hard for us to understand what it is to surrender, to willfully choose to put ourselves under a king. A king, nonetheless, that is truly worthy. Not a man-made king. Not someone that gets propped up because of the accolades or because of, of their bloodline. But a true king that's the perfect judge that has no guile, that is able to truly judge the heart of man and women who we want to submit to. Because I think all of us deep down long for that desire to not just have somebody yes us, a yes man or a yes woman, but someone that's righteous like our Lord Jesus Christ who alone knows right from wrong and has demonstrated that through his life and through his sacrifice and surrender. We long for that because we know it's right. It's right living. That's why it's called righteousness. It's wonderful. But but it needs to be a theocratic rule here lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods and one of them invites you to eat of his sacrifice. Now, unfortunately, if you've read the Bible, you know they didn't heed like they were told to, did they? They weren't watchful. They weren't mindful. They weren't intentional as God had told them to take heed in verse 12. And because of that, They were led into exile, both the northern and the southern tribe. He's trying to protect them. And he says, look, you take of your daughters for your sons, and your daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot. What's he saying? He's saying, don't intermarry. He's saying, don't do that. You know, Calvary Chapel here, I can tell you, I will actually marry two unbelievers. Some of you may find that odd. But according to the Bible, I can marry two unbelievers. I can marry two believers. What I cannot marry is one believer and one unbeliever. Why? Because you're unevenly yoked, as the Bible teaches. And what would be the hope that I would marry an unbelieving couple and that what they would do? They would come to Christ, that I would earn the right and, and maybe fellowship and counseling to be able to draw them to Jesus. That would be my motivation behind it, Right? But I can't tell you the marital problems that I see because there's this unevenly, this uneven yoke going on where couples, I mean, it's not just financial. It's not, I mean, friends, it's hard enough, right? With two different personalities coming together, one house, becoming one flesh supernaturally, which God does. Praise God. He does the work. It's hard enough because we have uniqueness to us and coming together in that. But then we find from that this calling according to Ephesians 5 that we have to be selfless in our marriage. Both male and female. We are to be selfless, not selfish. Because that's what it looks like. He's warning them. He's saying, look, if you compromise in your marriage... And you marry an unbeliever, or someone that poses and pretends to be, able, or however you put it. What's going to happen is, whatever their god is, well, pastor, they don't have a religion. They don't acknowledge that's their god. Whatever their, if, if it's fill in the blank, I don't have an example on the tip of my tongue. Fill in the blank with whatever that is. That is their god. That's the thing they're looking to. That's their idol. It becomes their worship. It becomes all they want to do. And then when you say, well, I want to go be with like-minded believers, I want to, as, you know, the book of Hebrews says what? Don't forsake the gathering of the saints as I want to get together one to another to encourage each other. I look forward to my Wednesday nights when, when I get to come out with the body of Christ on Sunday mornings like that. I don't know about you. I loved going to church. I loved sitting under the word. I loved seeing my brothers and sisters. I longed for it because when I was in the workplace and and, and there were espousing ideas of the world, it was toxic. It was toxic. And to come to a place where I could open the word of God, oh, it was like I could rest. I could breathe. He's warning them. He says, don't do this. He says, because while it looks good at first, they're going to cause you to come into sin. That's what happens. No matter how strong of a believer you think you are, that spouse or that other person or that person you might be dating, you might think, I can change them. Ladies, (laughs) ladies, did you ever say that? I want to change my man. You might say that to your girlfriend. He's, He's a good guy. Wait till I'm done with him, right? I don't change my man. And what do you think the guy's saying? I'm going to get her to lose that. This is me. We're going to be going to game. Guys, it's going to be great. We're going to make every game every Sunday, man. Right. Come on. If we're being real, you know, some of us said that. Notice I said some. I could have said all. And I think that would have been like amen. But I didn't. I said some because some of you are holier than me. So, (laughs) but the reality is it happens, and what, where's the tension in that? Then it becomes, well, you're, you're going to church again. Oh, I gotta sit home. Who, you know, who's gonna make dinner? <laughs> you know, wife or husband, whoever has the role of doing that, right? Whoever gets home first, whatever you do it in your family. It, it just adds all types of complication and confusion. It creates animosity, bickering. It, it just God is, isn't He great when He tells us not to do things, and then we watch what happens when Israel or other people do that. Gentiles, anyone? Oh, Lord. Once again, you got it right, Lord, 100% of the time. He says, you just don't make no molded gods for yourselves. That one had to, you talk about the insert twist. That one had to hit home, right? You know, the other ones, Lord, no, we wouldn't do that, Lord God. We won't intermarry. We won't do these other things. Well, just so we're making sure this is real and we're connecting, um, you know, you're not going to make any molded gods for yourself. Oh. You're talking to me, Lord. All 2.5 million of us, right? That was the Church of Israel at that time. Minus four or three thousand, whatever had been destroyed there, but it can happen to anybody. It can't happen to all of us. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. When did he command that? Back in Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, you might remember. He said, I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. When is that? Or When is that? March, April time frame, right? What's he talking about here? We're going we're gonna to look at this. What's he talking about? He's, what was the whole point of getting the leaven out of the house? What did leaven represent in the Bible? Sin. What's he asking us to do? To cleanse that out. To do what? To be pure. He's talking about purity here. In the temple of our heart. In the temple of our... He, purity. That's what he's talking about. And what also was significant is he tells us that's the month that they came out of Egypt. That's when they were actually delivered. It was in the month of March-April time frame. That's when God brought them up. So what was he reminding them? He's saying, when I delivered you... Pretty significant, right? When you crossed over and I delivered you, hey, everybody listening? Everybody paying attention? Yeah, I remember God. I was there. You delivered us. Yep, they're listening to this. He's saying, do you remember what you were to do? You were to purify yourself. Why? So you were clean, clean that way that you would never go back to the old life. And isn't that what he's doing through the sanctification process? It's not something we strive in sanctification. It's sanctification that he does through us. We don't go back to the old man. We don't go back to the old ways. We stay in the new man. We're a new creation. All things have been made new. We we have a choice in that. He's saying don't go back. He, in the New Testament, we'll refer to it as a dog going back to his vomit or even in the Old Testament, actually, it says that too. Some of you are like, ooh, hopefully you all ate. All that open the womb are mine. And every male firstborn, what he's doing is he's going back to the commands he made. This was Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus chapter 22. He's already stated, he's going back and he's repeating because what is he doing? He's renewing the covenant. So he's reminding them, hey, pay attention. I said it once. I'm saying it again. This is important. All that open the womb are mine. And every male firstborn of your livestock, whether oxen or sheep, but the firstborn of a donkey, you shall not, you shall not redeem, or you, excuse me, you shall redeem with a lamb. Why? Do you remember when we talked about that? You remember what it was about a donkey? What are donkeys? Donkeys are not ceremonial, right? They're not ceremonially what was that a word? ceremonially? Clean. 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 ceremonial clean, right? They're not. So, so they couldn't do that. They had to be redeemed with a lamb. Isn't that interesting? We weren't ceremonial clean either, were we? We had broken the law, didn't we? Wages of sin is death. All fall short of the glory of God. And we too had to be redeemed by something. What were we redeemed by? The Lamb of God who take away the sin of the earth. (laughs) Even in the beginning, God had the plan. Nothing changes. It's a story of Redemption. Cover to cover, love story. He says, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. I'm glad we got the redemption plan, man. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty handed. What's he saying? The firstborn are to be what? Dedicated to God. Remember the 10th plague? It went back to the firstborn. He tied it back. That he's he's helping them understand. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in the harvest you shall rest. What's he telling them? You are to rest during the busiest time of the year for you. You don't just rest when it's convenient. He's commanded you to rest. What is rest? Rest means coming into his presence. While we're not under the ceremonial law or the the law that way today where we have to, you know, honor a Sabbath day per se, where we have to stop what we're doing. But shouldn't we all still be, I, I don't see anywhere where scripture says that we're not to take time out and fellowship with God. If anything, I think God wants us to do that. I think he wants that rest. Why does he talk about a peace and a rest throughout all the New Testament and the New Covenant that he wants to give us for those that enter in, for those that do what? We put on his yoke. Remember? That means we're taking off ours. That means our ideas, our labors, our striving, we're taking that off and we're putting on his will, his yoke, something perfectly crafted for each and every one of us not too heavy not burdensome but it's that one thing that will truly give us rest he says because we're not juggling we're not trying to do all the things that we think we're supposed to do but instead we're doing what he's called us to do but he does say we need to rest rest during the busiest time of the year and you observe and you shall observe the feast of weeks and first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingatherings at the year's end. So he really tells us there's there's really three feasts here, right? You got Passover, you got Pentecost, and you got the Feast of Tabernacles, right? That That's really the three he's called them to. And when is Pentecost? It was 50 days after what? After the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, correct? Right? He tells us that. So he says three times a year, and this is beautiful. I love how he says this. And you shall observe the feast of weeks and the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of the gatherings at the year's end. Verse 23, three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord and the Lord the Lord God of Israel. He says you're to come together in unity for worship. Right? We can look back at that Exodus chapter 23 verses 14 through 17. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your brothers. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up. Do you see the promise he just said? He says, I'm going to give you safe travel. I'm going to give you travel mercies. And oh, by the way, when you leave your land, I'm going to protect the land supernaturally so that while you're up there at the three feast times that I've called you to come to, nothing's going to happen back at home. I'm going to take care of it because it's my ordained feast. It's my ordained gathering. It's my time where we are coming together in unity. That's how I know that heaven's going to be the greatest family reunion ever. It's going to be the greatest. That wedding feast of lamb is going to be amazing. You guys looking forward to that? It's going to be sweet. He says, neither will any man covet your land When when you go up or appear before the Lord your God three times a year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with lemon. Leaven, yeah, with lemon either probably. But you should not do it with leaven, right? Why leaven, why? Because you're not to take and intermingle. Life is in the blood with sin. You can't intermingle the two. But isn't that the challenge today for us, friends? If you're a Christian here, isn't that the real root and challenge? Not intermingling the purity of Jesus Christ with the sin? I mean, we, we all have to intent, be intentional about that, trying to turn away and, and destroy those idols, as I was mentioning earlier. Destroy them out of our life. Pray to God that he'll take them from our lives. Sometimes we're, we're not able to do it. Maybe, maybe you struggle with pornography. Maybe, maybe you struggle with alcohol. Maybe you struggle with drugs. Maybe maybe you're a workaholic here. Maybe, maybe something else is going on that you're struggling. And, and you're, Lord, I can't do it in my strength. Okay, but he can because his hand isn't slack. His grace is sufficient. And he promises to finish the work he began in you. The work he began in me. If he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't know how he's going to do it, we're going to submit and surrender to him and watch him get the glory. Because if it's not being done by our strength and power and will, it's being done by his, and then we praise his holy name. We don't look to one another and say, oh, that a boy. No. We give glory to Jesus. We give glory to God. Hmm. This is, I'll cast out nations before you. I'll enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up. appear before the Lord, God, three times a year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. You remember that? He kind of gave two commands there. He says, no, you can't leave. It needs to be consumed. You don't, Get to choose it that way. There's no, I'm going to leave it around. You know, it doesn't work that way. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We talked about that earlier when we were in Exodus chapter twenty-three, verse nineteen. You know, they've extracted so many laws from this. You know, you go over to Israel today, and you know, you go and you know, you have breakfast or lunch or dinner there, and you know, they might bring out uh, you know fish that way, and you'll see dairy present, and it's okay. But if they bring out meat or chicken, the servers quickly come, and, and it, you can't have the dairy out at the same time. It's not kosher to do that. And they go back to this verse. So if you have meat or chicken. Now, I've never seen a chicken get milked. Have you? I've never seen a chicken get milked. But the reality is they put chicken, you know, they put it in the same category. That's not what the Bible teaches. What what was this talking about? It was this idea, again, of the pagan fertility that the Canaanites, it started with the Canaanites. They would take and they would do this as, as part of their pagan rituals and fertility practices. And he's saying, once again, God's saying, don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the idols of the land. He says, I'm going to consume them. I'm going to destroy those, those pillars and towers. I'm going to destroy all of that. I'm going to purify it for you. Don't join them because it will cause you to sin. As great as you are as my chosen people... You will fall into temptation is what he's saying to them. He's telling them, look, you didn't arrive, boys. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. He's saying, in addition to the Decalogue I've given you, the ten commands, capture every one of these. He says, you write these words down. He says, this is very important. It is the tenor of my words. It is the tenor of these words, Right? amazing so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights no he was also with God 40 days and 40 nights before the first time he went up the mountain but something's different this time he's doing a supernatural fast something that doesn't bear repeating in scripture we don't see anywhere in scripture where he's called God has called any one of us to do a 40-day fast from water and food you know, to fast for 40 days, my pastor's dad did that. I mean, it, it can be done, but you have to be called to that. And, and, and you know, I think even then he, he might have taken just a, a teaspoon of peanut butter every day or something like that. But seven days without water, the eighth day, you're going to die. This is something that is supernatural. There's There's no other way to explain what happened here. This isn't figurative. This is literal. We're to believe that God did something very supernatural with Moses up on this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That somehow he did not need food nor water like that. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Hmm. That told him what? How to build the ark or, you know, and all that. The tabernacle. Now, It was so, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he walked or while he talked with him. Talk about awkward, right? Can you imagine? You're walking down the mountain and your face is showing like that. Some of you this last uh, Saturday, I, I guess I got a little bit of a sunburn. And I was, you know, I was kind of teased. I said, well, it's the Shekinah glory. You know, I didn't know what else to say. I, I didn't realize how red it was until I actually got home. But, uh, and later that night, I, I felt how, um, how much red that was. But, uh, but when Moses here did, had no idea, he had no idea that his face was radiating the glory of God. I mean, and what does that tell us? That you can't spend any length of time with God and not come away changed or transformed. It's, it's impossible. Maybe you're not gonna come away where your face is shown through like that. I mean, we don't really have any other place in scripture to compare exactly what this looked like. I, I Honestly, I try not to imagine it. I, I don't know what it would look like, but whatever it was, it was enough to frighten the children of Israel when they saw Moses so much that he put a veil. But I'm going to suggest to you that he didn't wear a veil because the children were frightened. While we read that in scripture, we need to go to 2 Corinthians. Paul's got a lot to tell us on that. We're we're going to do that in a moment. But it's important we continue reading here. He says that when he had come down right from the mountain, that Moses did not know the skin of his face was showing while he talked with him. Right. Again, contrasting that with the first time he went up there. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid, underline that, to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and to all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. I imagine they saw something different, not only physically with Moses, but they discerned something was spiritually different with Moses. He was never the same. Friends, that, that's why I encourage you day after day, week after week, to read your Bible. Because when you read the Bible, you're pressing into the living God. It's the primary way he speaks with us. And I promise you, and I can only promise you because God promised it first, that you will never come away the same. You can read this book, it's a supernatural book, Hundreds of times. Every time you read it, you will find something new, a pearl that God is stringing in your heart. Something He is revealing to you and you alone out of His tender mercies because He communicates with His children. It's beautiful. Well, Moses was different. He wasn't the same. The people were talking with him. Aaron was there talking with him. But but something was different. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, right? What did he tell them? The greatest things they could have heard. Because when God had left them the first time, what did he say? He says, I can't go with you in my presence. Do you remember that? And Moses was so upset. That's why he went up to the mountain to begin. First, to intercede for the people saying, God, you need to go with us. I don't want to go with you if you're not going to. The people were like, well, we can't go. We don't want to go without God either. They wanted God's presence. And so they interceded God, pleading with him, come with us. And they listened to everything he had to say. They listened to the Decalogue again. They listened to all these commands. But the sweetest thing they heard that, that, that moment was I've renewed my covenant with you, that I'm a God of second chances. I'm a God of second chances. Praise be to God for that. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put on a veil. This word in the Hebrew is masveh. It's a unique word. It's only used one time in all scripture right here. Only used here. Never used before this way. In the New Testament, the word is different. Obviously, it's Greek, but it's it's different in its connotation, what it means. But it's masve. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out and he would come out and speak with the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. So we see something here. There's a covering on Moses. And what did the veil cover again? Sorry, what did the veil cover again? What happened when Moses, what happened? It radiated God's what? Glory. This is important because, again, if we latch on to verse 30, we could think that Moses wore that veil because of the fear. The, The people were afraid to come near him. But Paul tells us it's different. Paul says, no, that's not the real reason. So we're gonna take a moment here and we're gonna we're gonna spend some time going to Second Corinthians. We're gonna look at verse three or chapter three, excuse me, and we're gonna we're gonna finish going. I'm gonna finish reading the verse 35. Go ahead and start turning in your Bibles, give you time to get there. Second Corinthians chapter three, it's right around verse seven. But it says that he would come out and speak with the children of Israel, whatever had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face had shone. Now that word shone there, I don't know, some of you maybe grew up in a Catholic or you had another upbringing, maybe Eastern Orthodox or something, where you saw a picture of Moses and you saw him have two horns some of you may have seen a picture like that. They're older. I, I, you can find them on the internet if you go look. Like a picture of Moses. You know, some of the pictures, you know, they'll have like a halo for some people. Some, well, they, a lot of the older pictures of Moses, even renditions that um, go back, come really from the Latin Vulgate. The translation that was in the Latin Vulgate was translated, or I would like to say was mistranslated according to the original manuscripts. If you go back to some of the manuscripts, it translated it as a horn. But actually, when it says "shown," it was actually shot forth beams. Like that's the original meaning in the Hebrew—that it shot forth beams. That's why you'll see some pictures that when they have the face of Moses, they'll show like you know radiant beams coming out. Have you ever seen that? Maybe some of you have seen those uh, pictures like that. That's what it's talking about here. But it's—it's not—it's not horns that way. But but hold your finger here. And let's, tr- let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to get the, the rest of the, the story, if I can say it that way, the rest of the account that God gave us here about what was going on. And this is, man, this is heavy. Like, I, I was praying, Lord, you know, we could have just taken verses 7 through really 18. I, I could have just taught on this for an hour. I mean, there's that much meat just on these verses. They're critical, I mean, this, this is all about the new covenant and, and the glory of it, and what was the presence of God but radiating the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. I mean, there's so much that's foundational to what we believe. And Paul, through revelation of Jesus Christ, he's explaining this to the Corinthians in Corinth there. But we we need to go through it. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna exegete a little bit here, okay? So I'm gonna go a little bit slower because I I need us to get down to verse 16 eventually, which is the point of where I want us to be, but I can't just drop us in 16. I, 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 we need to go through it. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death, right, so what's it talking about? Again, I, forgive me, I'm landing you in the middle of Second Corinthians without context. He's talking about the old covenant, that's what Paul had been building up in Second Corinthians here, specifically going into chapter 2 and what he's going to be building in chapter 3, the idea of the spirit and the law and the letter of the law and different things like that. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So I'm kind of dropping us in this passage, but it says, but if the ministry of death, and that's specifically talking about the old covenant, because what does the law do? The law kills, right? And who does it kill? Guilty sinners. That's that's what Paul had been bringing up. That's that's Paul's thesis or theme as he's going through this. Written on engraved, written and engraved on stones was glorious. Now talking about the glory of God, right? In giving, um, you know, when we read, where was God when He gave Moses? He was on Mount Sinai with Moses. How do we know He was there? Because it says that the smoke did what it came down and it burned the fire and everything burned the top of the mountain what did the smoke uh, when it talks about that with god in his presence what's it talking about it's it's speaking to the glory of god that's why sometimes you know you might know that song well the smoke filled the sanctuary or or his presence filled the room and you say it's a smoke or or the incense like that that's what it's speaking about here so it's talking about his glory Right? It was glorious so that the children could not look steadily at the face of Moses because it reflected the glory of God after being in the presence of God. Right, You with me? You guys tracking with me? All right. Because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away. Ooh, wait a minute. See, now we got our first clue of what that veil may be trying to cover up. See, God's glory never passes away. But that Shekinah glory that Moses, through being in his presence 40 days and 40 nights, pressed into that, he had the glory shown upon him, right? We just read shown earlier already back in Exodus. What happens? Well, friends, I'll make it simple. What happens if you don't read your Bible for a month? Forget a month. What happens if you don't read your Bible for a week? You think you're good, don't you? Two weeks goes by, three weeks. You thought you were standing at the door. The Lord says, knock, and he'll what? He'll come in and do what? He'll sup with us. He'll eat with us. He'll fellowship with us. You think you're at the door. Week goes by. You know, Lord, I've been really busy this week. You understand, Lord. Lord. God, I, I know I want to get back in fellowship that way. Lord, I love you. I'm talking to you. But I, but God, I, the kids, things have been coming up. What am I to do? And you find other things that keep going, that keep happening because life continues on. And then you stop for one minute because you realize something's different. Kind of like that moment, you know, Saul in, in the Old Testament, not Paul, but Saul in the Old Testament, he didn't realize when the glory of God had departed from him. The scariest thing for me that can happen to any man or woman, not realizing when the presence of God, the glory of God, departs from you. Well, well, this is what happened. That the glory was beginning to fade because he wasn't pressed in. In this example, I'm talking about, and even Moses, he's he still fellowship with God, but he's he's not in that intimacy the way he was at 40 days and 40 nights in fasting. And so here he's away, and he looks back, the man, then the example I was just giving and what's he realize how far from the door he is do you think he anticipated that do you think you and i anticipate that do we even realize that's happening i would i would suggest no most of the times we think we still got it we're still we're going to be okay we're not that far away from god how, how far it was only a week how far could we get from his presence you're going to be manipulated by something right i'm going to use the word manipulating not controlled and there's a reason for that Men manipulate. God washes. His word washes us. It's gentle. It's perfect. It comes in like a surgical instrument and goes right into the heart and touches and removes what needs to be taken out. Manipulation and persuasion, it's not a fine-tuned instrument. It's all about winning the argument or getting your point across. And in doing so, there's carnage because people walk away feeling inferior, hurt, often guilty because they didn't know. See God doesn't operate in guilt. God doesn't operate in manipulation. God washes you he cleanses you he takes the filth from the world and he washes it out of your mind and he renews you that's what that's what's happening here tonight for all of you for me this is we cannot help but when we read the word of god for our minds to be washed and renewed because many of us don't even realize how far we've gotten away from the very presence of god it was it was never intentional friends right it was not intentional well this is what paul's talking about he says that the glory was passing away why was it fading Well, because the old covenant was based on works. It was based on the law. It will fade. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? What's he telling us there? What's the ministry of the spirit? He says the new covenant, I'll paraphrase. He says the new covenant never fades away. That's what he's saying. He's saying the new covenant never fades like that. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory. What's that ministry of condemnation? The law, the Old Testament that way. And and I don't mean the entire Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying being under the law is what I'm talking about. Being under the works that way, which no man could keep other than Christ Jesus, the man, the God man, Christ Jesus. He says the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. That's what he tells us here. He says, it exceeds. The old's gone. It's, it's, the new is way more glorious. For even what has been made glorious has no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Why does it excel? Because the new covenant excels because it's through Jesus Christ. And it's not based on you and I. Whose shed blood was it? His. Whose broken body was it? His. It's in no way dependent on you and I for perfection or purity. It's all based on the atoning work that our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, did for us. That's what he's pointing to. It's deep, man, right? It's deep. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. He repeats it again in verse 11. Therefore, since we have such hope, we we what? We use great boldness of speech. He says, under the new covenant, we we ought to have more of a boldness because we have Christ and we have truth. We don't have compromise there. We're not under the law where we're making it one day and blowing it another day. He's saying it's not dependent on that. We have Christ. We're sealed. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment to our salvation. We're sealed, he says. You can't lose your salvation that way. He's saying you're sealed, he says, now walk out your faith in fear and trembling, or excuse me, walk out salvation with fear and trembling. What's he talking about? He, it's like what James said. You're not saved. You're not saved by your works, but it sir sure is fruit of a converted believer. They begin to walk it out. They begin to, because Christ begins to do the work inside them, and they want to serve. They want to surrender to Christ. They want to be all in. And it, it's a process. It, it's not that it's not sometimes it's still a struggle. <laughs> he, he didn't say that there's not a wrestling that still happens between the flesh going, I'm tired, I just want to sit down. You know, it's like, it's like the gym, right? How many of you go to a gym? Probably some of you, right? Many of you, right? Here, go to a gym. Some of you are like, no, you're like me, man. All right. We eat, right? And then we sleep. No, but some of you are way healthier, right? You go to gym. You go to a gym every day, right? I, it says that it, it profits. It profits a little, which is why I only go to the gym a little, but, but it profits, right? I'm having fun with you guys. But what's the point? Some people wake up extra early to do that or they'll put a whole schedule around their workout. They're very disciplined. And, and I actually... I think that's wonderful, that they want to live, they want to be healthy. They're, that's not a bad thing, is it? Is it bad to be healthy? No, it's good. But when you ask them, where's your intention and in your devotion to Christ that way? Well, I never thought about that. Granted, we don't want a routine, do we? So it's, it shouldn't be programmatic. But is that an idol? You know, what about clubs? Sports can be that way. The NFL can be that way, friends. I hate to admit it. I mean, we can get so caught up on these things and we end up, you know, I got to get home early from church. Can't stop in fellowship with someone. Game's on. Got to get there for the game. All right, that's my sin. Okay. <laughs> I, there was... um. Well, it doesn't matter. We don't have time. I have a story for that sometime. But the point God is trying to get through to our minds is that there should be a great boldness under the new covenant because it's not based on works. What's that mean? That means there's a freedom. There's a freedom there is what he's trying to show us. It's a beautiful freedom that way. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the what? Now we're finding out what the real reason for that veil was. The masveh. What, what, was, the real, what was the real reason for that? That the, that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was what? Passing away. What was passing away? We just read it in the earlier verses. The glory that had shone on Moses' face. Isn't that interesting? Paul explains why he was hiding the diminishing glory that was passing away. He didn't want them to see it. He didn't want them to see that the glory was passing away, that it was diminishing. Isn't that interesting? But their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Christ. There's a new covenant. He's not saying don't read the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the law. He says if you place yourself under the law or any legalism for that matter, pick a legalistic thing. You know, ceremonial practices. You put yourself under that. That's a problem. He's saying look what you've done. He He says that the veil still remains. You're still holding something there. You know? There's so many different, you know, things like that that we can put and we're putting a veil up and we don't realize we're doing that. But the veil's still there. We're still trying to hide something. That's what Paul was saying. That's what what Christ was giving him. He said that Christ has taken that away. That's why, friends, fellowship on what day you want. The, The early church fellowshiped on Sunday, right? The early church did. But is there anything wrong with fellowshipping on a Saturday if that's when services and there's a church? Fellowship on a Saturday. Hey, you want to eat pork. But the the, the Israelites, right, they, they, they didn't believe that because it was kosher, right? But you want to have bacon. He's saying eat bacon, man. Right? Pig roast. Let's do it. Some of you know I can't eat bacon anymore. I'm working through it. But... I eat turkey bacon, man. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same. I got saved. The Lord made me kosher. I don't know. But (laughs) no, really, man. I can't have bacon. I don't know what it is. Got the gallbladder out. Can't have bacon. See, you learned something about your pastor day. I don't get it. Thank you. I'm working through it. I'm serious. You can hear there's still a like, Lord, but bacon, man. But the point is, is he said, there's no veil, right? What do you need it for is what he's saying. I love Wednesday nights. I can't do this on Sunday mornings. I can do this on Wednesday nights. I love this. That's what I love about Wednesday. I'm more intimate. I love it. He says, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Because what does the veil do? It separates. What's it going to separate? Jew and Gentile. It's going to separate them both. I'll explain in a minute here. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He says, when you turn to Jesus Christ, the veil is removed because you're not under the law, you're not under this legalism, you're not under any of that anymore. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I like liberty. Liberty's good. Liberty's telling us we can't earn it. We can't keep it. There's nothing to do like that. Remember, this is in the context of salvation. This isn't the context to sanctification, how we live our lives as well. It's, It's in the context of both. He's saying that when that veil's taken away, we can now see spiritually 2020. We now have 2020 vision. We could see what we could never see with the law there. We could see what we could never see because we created an artificial obstacle in front of us that was actually separating us from God because we put something there that we thought we had to do to appease God in some way. And God's saying, no, I did it all. I love you. He says, take the veil off. He says, take the veil off because my glory never fades. And the point should be is your focus should be on what? On me, on Jesus. It shouldn't be on looking to a man or some other person or some works based mentality or some law or ceremonial practice that you put in place to somehow believe that that's drawing you closer to God. It absolutely doesn't do anything like that, It, it does nothing of the sort. I mean Romans 14 says, hey, you can do that. You have liberality or liberty. He says, but but put compassion or love before your liberty. So if somebody can't, and he calls it weak, if somebody's weak and they can't and they won't eat anything but vegetables, sit with them and have a carrot. Don't trip them up. Have a carrot with them. Somebody also says, hey, I'll go grab meat down at the temple with sacrificed idols. Hey, we're having steak tonight, man. All right. Let's eat. Man, if we just understood that, all the condemnation, remember he talked about condemnation earlier, all that condemnation, even the condemnation that Moses himself must have been dealing with in trying to hide the fact that the glory was fading because he was under the law and he knew the law existed but God was all the time trying to point him to one that never faded or one thing that never fadeth, and that is Jesus Christ in his blood. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, he said all, he didn't say some. Truly, his desire is that we all have liberty. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. Remember, it's God's mirror, not our mirror. This is what this is talking about. And remember the mirrors of that day. They were very dim. They weren't like good mirrors like we have today, right? They were foggy. They kind of looked at it. They were not a good mirror like that. But what is it reflecting? How do I know it's God's mirror? Because what's it reflecting? Read there. Look, don't look at me. Read there. What's it say? The glory of the Lord. It's reflecting the glory of the Lord. It says the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. And it reminds me of just what God did when, or excuse me, just what Moses did in verse 12 when it says that he went to God and it was with great boldness of speech. Didn't Moses do that? He was able to go up to that mountain with great boldness. It all points to intimacy with God. And what does that veil do? It breaks the intimacy. What are veils meant to do? They're meant to cover something up. What was the veil in the Holy of Holies meant to do? Create a barrier, a distance. What did Jesus Christ do? Tore it so that we could come in to God the Father. We don't need a man. We don't go to a a priest and sit down and tell him what we've done. Because he can go, well, I absolve you. Who are you to absolve anybody? You are no one. Jesus Christ absolves us. God's work absolves us. This is where we get it wrong. That, in two is a form of legalism. Again, thinking you have to do something. God wants to set people free. He doesn't want us walking and holding on to these things. He wants our focus to be on him alone because as we already read, turn back to Exodus, what did he tell us as he was renewing the covenant with them? He was a jealous God. He doesn't want to share his glory with some obstacle or some pagan God or some ritual in our lives. He wants all of our hearts. And he wants to set us free because he knows if there's condemnation, we're gonna wrestle with that. And while we're wrestling with that, it's a distraction. It's a distraction from pressing into him and just receiving him as we are. That's why those words that Paul inspired, you know, ro- was inspired to write, where there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1, I think it is, or 8.10, somewhere in there. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You be Bereen's, you can go back and look. I think it's Romans, I know it's Romans chapter 8. Eight one. All right, praise the Lord. You guys are quick. Got those electronic Bibles there, or memorized. Either way, praise God. Some of you are like, "Oh, I've memorized that one." It's a good. It's a good verse to memorize, isn't it? Right. So as we come back, we can start chapter thirty-five. But we got about five minutes, so I think we'll end there for tonight. Now let's do three verses. Let's go. You gotta open your Bible again. Come on. Come on, Pastor. Make it straight. Look at I'm spirit-led. It takes me a minute to catch up to God. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath rest to the Lord he's going to tell them there's lots of work to do because what are they going to begin doing? Do you, you, if you've read on and you know chapter 35 and 36, really the rest of the chapters until we conclude the book you know of Exodus there and really until you might even say until we get to the last verse of verse 38 you know, of chapter 38 like that, it's all going to be turning to building that tabernacle that God commanded. So there's going to be tons of work that needs to be done but before they work, what's God tell them to do first? Rest. Lots of work, but the first thing he wants them to do is rest. Why? What are they supposed to do when they rest? Are they just supposed to kind of sleep and somber? And... No, what are they supposed to do when you rest? What does that mean in the Bible when God says, I will give you rest? When you press into me, it means fellowship. It doesn't mean we just, we just sort of go on vacation, He's telling us to press into him. That's part of the rest we receive. And he says, remember what he said even during his feast or even during, he says, I don't care if it's in the middle of your harvest. If it's the busiest time of year, he says, I don't care. He says, I want your presence with me. I want you press into me. I want that rest. I want that relationship. He says, that's paramount. Before you touch anything that I would have you do, you first need to be right with me before you do anything. You know, I've often said is you know, we need people to help in children's ministry, we need help all over the, the church, different things here and there. But I never want somebody to get so busy that they're serving and they're doing all these things, and they have no time to come in and be fed from with the word of God. Because the only thing that you're gonna be able to pour out is what's been poured into you. And if the word of God isn't poured into you and the Holy Spirit isn't poured into you and you're not being refreshed and revived, which is why pastors, oh, God's speaking to my heart with this. This happens a lot with under shepherds because we study the Bible so much preparing for what God wants to give you, a feast. First, he does the work in our hearts, but then he he prepares a feast for you. But if if I turn around and and I don't take time to be fed myself, I'm gonna be spiritually bankrupt, just like the example I gave you earlier with the illustration. I'm gonna get farther and farther away. And you'll see it, you'll notice it. You can tell when when you know I'm running a little bit low. You guys know me well. And if I'm knit to you, you're knit to me. You're knit to your pastor. You know. I can tell when it happens to you. You're, you know, nobody's being fooled here. Let's just say it like it is. Isn't that wonderful? that accountability we have one to another, the real family that way. And if you're saying, well, pastor, you know, I've been E many times and you never said anything. Well, maybe it's my my time to say something. Maybe the Lord's saying, let that person draw near unto me for their strength and not for another man. You know, there's times where God speaks differently in each circumstance There's no robotic. Remember, it's not manipulation. It's relationship. It's not religion. He says, whoever does work, he says, I want you to know something. I'm going to make it so simple that you can't misconceive what I'm saying here. Whoever does work on this day of rest, they shall be put to death. Whoever chooses to put their work before their fellowship with me is not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. That's why liars, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, the whole thing, he goes on to say, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. How can it be so? Because he's saying that they're choosing a lifestyle or a situation or something else other than real relationship. Because without relationship, why do you want to go to heaven anyway? To be estranged with a father? I think we did enough of that on earth. Maybe some of us. Enough of our mothers like that on earth, fathers, family. I think we need real intimacy in heaven where we don't have to be estranged from anyone. And I think God was telling us that when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and John the Baptist came and he was the forerunner as prophesied. God was trying to let us understand there's a poor part of that that we can even have now. Sure, it won't be fully realized until we're in the kingdom of God, but there's a part of it that can be realized now if we allow it, if we let our guards down, if we're real. If we come in and we just be together, we just bear one another's burdens, laugh, encourage one another. If we live out the word of God rather than just using it as a paperweight. You see, I believe many of you understand what the word disciple means, one that follows after but I'm not so sure everyone truly wants to be the disciple of Jesus Christ because that means that they have to deny their own will in choosing to be the master of their lives. But you can't serve two masters. He says, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And he tells them all this before we'll begin verse 4 next week, which will begin the work of God. The rest of it, chapter 25. Really, from 25 to 31, what God had given us as a pattern, as we read, we are now going to see enacted in the remaining verses, chapter 35, all the way on. And we'll be moving through it at a pretty brisk pace, actually, um, because a lot of it is Repeated from the pattern, but we'll talk about the different ways that we see Christ in all these things because there's so many typologies through it. So let's change. Let's challenge ourselves as we read this devotionally ahead. Let's come back next Wednesday and let's let's see how many of us can find Jesus even in the lampstand and all of the emblems that we see in the temple, all the different ways Jesus Christ was trying to tell us about His love. And then we'll read the third book. Right? Leviticus. We'll be on the Leviticus already. And for some of you, you may be going, oh, that book, just a bunch of names. Oh, no. If you've never gone line by line through Leviticus, oh, man, get ready. Your socks are going to get knocked off. Spiritually, you're going to get your socks knocked off. It's wonderful. All right. Let's stand. Let's pray. Jenny, you want to come on up here? And Jess? You want to send us out of here praising the one and only God that we're here to serve? After all, that's the only reason we come, to meet with Jesus and to be encouraged by one another. All right, guys, let's just bow our heads. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful to meet us each and every place we go, Lord, because you dwell in us. And Lord, when our hearts are surrendered and our, our minds are calibrated calibrated to your word, Lord, we get that spiritual twenty twenty, God. We even see what Moses, Lord, the inner heart of Moses in the veil, Lord, because of your your word for us that you've given us in Second Corinthians, God, we, we get to see the true heart. We learned about, Lord, how you really don't want any condemnation, Lord. You don't just say it as a as a nice saying or a, a memory verse, Lord, but Lord, all of your word testifies to the fact that the law kills. It's for dying sinners. But Lord Jesus, your new covenant, the covenant of liberty through your shed blood, Lord, oh, that gives freedom, God. That gives relationship. That's intimacy, Jesus. It has nothing to do with religion and everything to do with you, Lord. God, thank you for calling us. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us. Lord, forgive us as we wander, Lord. We are fickle people. But thank you that you'll never let a one of us go out of your hand. Thank you that you hold us ever so tight. Thank you that you guard our hearts. Thank you that we're precious in your eyes, that we're the apple of your eye, Lord. And God, we love you more than anything else. Lord, nothing in our lives will take preeminence, no idol, no pagan worship. Lord, just as you had instructed Israel, we too receive that word this evening. Lord, forgive us and tear down any of these idols. Tear down anything in our lives, Lord, that we've been holding on to. And let us experience your pure glory, undefiled, perfect, righteous, and holy. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen.